We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Principle number 17, I think. Recognise that most decisions by governments are political experiments. Yeah, it reminds me of George Bush, I think. George W. Bush saying that most of what he was doing was making decisions, which seemed like a sort of a a puppet kind of uh, expressing something profound. But decisions, I mean, it's it's all deliberation, isn't it? That's the, the main work of government. You know, what a decision. I mean, what is a decision? It's like a law. I mean, I've said this before. A decision is words on a piece of paper. They get terribly excited about, you know, making decisions. But in practice, you know, what is that? Because until that decision goes into action, until something happens on the ground, then it's just words on a piece of paper. And my co-author, Ray, reframed this term decisions, which sounds terribly important, into designs for action. So Mm. in practice, what they should be doing is thinking how they can design some change, some systemic input uh, deliberation, as you say, such that some action will occur. Well, it's interesting because I was thinking as I was reading up a little bit for this session, the way you frame it, and I think the way it actually is, what the governments are effectively doing is they're sort of wandering from start line to start line without really staying to watch the race. So it's like they celebrate the start, but then they have no idea what's going on afterwards and they don't really care. And so it all seems a bit, you know, there's a sort of detachment. It's so interesting. I mean, if if you watch the House of Lords or or indeed the European Parliament at work, they get terribly excited about a law and the minutiae of a particular law or regulation. And then it's passed and they have a celebration. The House of Lords all retire to the tea room, you know, terribly puffed up, feeling terribly important, um, have a jolly good cup of tea. And that's it. Then we're on to the next law. Mm. There is actually... No thought, I think. There's absolutely nothing in their heads about, well, now how is this law going to play out? How is it going to be put into practice? What will happen? And these are the actions. So they, they have the designs, but they, the designs are not pointed to action. You know, this detachment of decision, so-called, from action, that you think you can separate these off, is utterly absurd because you can't and it needs to be an integrated process you only ever do decision and action or designs for action 
Well, I suppose this is the thing, and we'll come on to this in a minute, that the decisions are, as you say, political experiments, or they are experiments full stop, and some of which will be political. But one thing that really struck me was the sheer volume of quote-unquote decisions being made. You said 150 per week. Per department, was it? Per department, per week? Per ministry. Yeah, I've asked a couple of ministers, you know, just how many decisions are going through their departments each week. And the stuff that comes up to them via these red boxes that they're looking at every night and having to sign off on various decisions. And then, of course, there'll be a, a number of junior ministers in that department. I mean, very roughly, very roughly, about 150 a week. And when you say very roughly, with a tolerance of about what fifty either way, so between fifty and two hundred, kind of thing, or uh, between one hundred yeah, and two hundred, something of that nature. Yeah, and then, and then you add it up, and I think, I mean, as with all estimates, they tend to become more accurate as you aggregate. In fact, so that hmm. you know you're looking at about ten thousand across government, which obviously is a pretty dramatic number. I mean, we'll come back to this, but when we talk about a decision, we're talking about a law or a regulation or some change that affects somebody. And if you're talking about 10,000 of these per year, I can't help thinking back to our famous Ashby's Law of Requisite Variety. I mean, there's just no possibility of anybody keeping track of all that. No. I mean, it seems it seems like a completely unrealistic and absurd task that someone should, and yet clearly these things are having impacts all over the place. Yeah, and that level, this tiny top trying to deal with all mm. of this in this hugely over-centralised and almost egomaniacal setup, you look at that and say, yes, it's impossible. Now, clearly where you've got subsidiarity operating effectively, uh, Switzerland, Germany, etc. Indeed, India. And China. by subsidiarity, just for new listeners, we're talking about a sort of an inverse of the power structure so that it's about power being allowed out from the local rather than being dispensed from the centre. Yes. Where um, we so as citizens say, okay, well, this, this is what we allow and this is what we don't allow. Yeah, exactly. And so you take the decision as close to the point of action as you can, and you only do those things centrally, which can't be done effectively locally, or which would benefit from uh, national regulation. So in those countries, systems where you have much greater, I mean, devolution is the opposite of subsidiarity, but it's the same thing, you therefore don't have this massive overload on the centre with the centre trying to do far more than it possibly can, as you say. Right. And let's just come back to the tiny top, because I think you've got some good numbers around proportionately just how tiny government is. And if we think back to our analogies, for example, with uh, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, and also with the thick of it, and that sense of obliviousness and and chaos Mm. that goes with all of that, this this tiny top is a very real thing, and it's necessarily out of control. You know, typically, here's a decision. It, it, I mean, it may be as something as as wide as a whole school system. 
it may be something as specific as the size of holes in trawler nets in order to control overfishing. Typically, you'll find there'll be a number of papers, specialists will be feeding stuff into the centre. But then within the centre, you'll find a handful of civil servants who may or may not get an airing by the politicians, depending on whether the politicians like what they're hearing. And then the minister will be advised, perhaps by one or two other ministers, perhaps not, certainly by their special advisers. But you can find that a handful, you know, it may be three or four people actually taking the decision as to what they're going to do. The notion that this tiny, selective, limited perspective group of people are somehow or other going to get these decisions right, whatever right is, is absurd. And I think it only happens by chance that we're fortunate enough to find that some of these decisions do work, but by and large, most of them don't. Typically, what you end up with is a muddle. So, you know, you had a muddle before, and now you've got a different kind of muddle, which I suppose might be a bit of a change, but it's still a muddle. But, but if, you know, going back to our last principle, if the purpose of government is to produce beneficial change mm. and the actuality of government is making decisions, is that, is that a sort of a false actuality or like how does that fit into the whole system? Should we see decisions differently? Should, should we see the decision-making process? Because this is, you know, it's absurd, 10,000 per year, that are decided by a tiny group who don't really know what they're doing and affect a bunch of people who don't really know what's happened is not really a a practical, workable system, is it? I think we're getting to the core of why so many people are finding that in practice, their experience of their government is not a satisfactory experience. There's all this noise and news and initiatives and photo shoots and policyitis going on and that actually it doesn't work. And it doesn't work particularly in relation to this, that here we have these competing policy offerings at election time that say that we're going to do this and we're going to do that and life will improve. Right, but then obviously that sort of messianic view of elections, that somehow there's going to be a deliverer, someone will come and deliver us from evil, is intimately bound up in what you call the end state fallacy, this idea that somehow a policy will bring about an end state and then everything will be great. Absolutely. So there we are, that somehow or other you can policyize an end state into existence. And then you think about that and you think about history and you think about your own experience. And I thought right back to the housing projects and housing estates around the world, not in every country, but around the world, post-war, there we are, we need lots of housing. Some of that because it's been bombed, some of it because it's slums. So what do we do? We get some specialists, some experts at the centre deciding that we're going to have high-density housing. Uh, We're going to have streets in the sky. We're going to have tower blocks. Off we go. We obliterate the houses that are there. In some respects, a jolly good thing. They're slums. They don't have outdoor toilets. They're decrepit. But we obliterate the communities that go with those houses and completely do not grasp 
how important that establishment, that existence of that community is. So then we throw all these up. And then what do we discover? That actually we've produced ghettos, we've produced this new outlaw class, we've produced an ambience for living that often for people who aren't in the outlaw class, indeed people who are in the outlaw class, find pretty appalling intolerable to the extent that Manchester, where I was in the 60s and 70s, they took down these estates and then rebuilt human scale housing. You look at the way in which the EU has gone about its uh, CO2 reduction policies. Well, some of that is about producing biomass fuel, which jolly good at lower to negligible CO2 emissions. But in order to produce that, you have to cut down swathes of forests to produce mm. uh, the plants that produce the biomass. In cutting down those swathes of forests, you find that you've increased the CO2 because those forests are no longer regulating it. And, you know, the existing economic system, the neoliberal economic system we're in, is actually a mass political experiment. This is why you have such an emphasis on feedback, because, as you say, no one really knows what they're doing. And without feedback, we still don't know. But with feedback, we could actually get somewhere. And I'm thinking in particular of the Finnish and Swiss school systems, which have been such a great model for a continuously evolving system rather than the sort of ding-dong that we've had, for example, in the UK between left and right governments and, you know, doing and undoing uh, various schools' policies. So with housing, you know, what would you do? Well, you'd set up individual experiments. And of course, these experiments would vary depending on the context and depending on the local culture and the history of that particular place. And also what the stakeholders thought might be best for them. You would go along to streets in Liverpool and you would say, we've got some crap housing here. What should we do? How should we design it? You do an experiment. And this has happened more recently. The community would be involved in that experiment and hey, press. Well, we talked about that in, in, at the end of series one, didn't we? With the, the uh, is it Toxteth? No, yeah, the, the experiment. Yeah, so that's what you do. I mean, in ditto in the case, I mean, particularly something around climate change and reducing CO2, the complexities of the world uh, biosphere are such that the notion that you can policyize change into existence without running the risk, as indeed they have, of making the situation worse, is, I mean, it, it's beyond just egocentric. It, it, it's really nothing. Well, psychotic. It, yeah, well, psychotic would be a better word. I mean, on that, the classic way of the way in which governments behave, the, the process, papayas. So problem, here's a problem. It gets analysed, uh, a policy is produced, this is approved, it goes to implementation, and then we have solutions. So P-A-P-A. And hence the acronym PAPIS, that's the Problem Analysis Policy Approval Implementation Solution. Solution, we got the answer. But I thought by chance I'd have a look, you know, is there a dictionary definition? Well, in Spanish, PAPIS means daddy. There we are, government as daddy. For an infantilised population, yeah. Exactly so, and and an infantilised political and electoral system. 
And in the Urban Dictionary, this gets even more to the heart. The sexiest man in the universe, his large penis could destroy the sun, <laughs> and his butthole is really a black hole. And I thought, my word, doesn't that sum up so much of what government does, particularly the butthole being a black hole? And then the, yeah. the notion and wave, of... Waving the... its great cock around, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, look at us, look at us, look at us. And my word to all sorts of men and indeed women come to mind who behave in that manner. So we've got to the heart of the beast in a way here and we have a couple of means to to find our way out. And I'm thinking in particular of Ashby's Law. For new listeners, this is Ashby's Law of Requisite Variety. Essentially, variety is needed to deal with variety. So, for example, if you're dealing with uh, 10,000 decisions uh, a year, um, then you need the feedback on those 10,000 decisions in order to exercise control over what happens. I think it's really about control, isn't it? The the impossibility of large-scale control when there's large-scale complexity. But I think with regards to policy or decisions as political experiments... What's particularly interesting about Ashby's law is that it shows that, firstly, the centre can't know. It it can't be in a state of knowledge about this massively complex system. And secondly, as with Yes Minister in the thick of it, they just can't handle it. It's just not possible. You know, they may think that they can handle it, but we see over and over again how it's just not possible. And yet, it's kind of obvious that if you accept that decisions are political experiments. You can get back to this scientific orientation that we've talked about before, because not knowing, you know, you can't possibly know, but this is the starting point of effective and honest experimentation. If you don't know something, then you you can start to experiment. And then not being able to handle it is the starting point of a systemic response, because you know you can't do it yourself, so you know you need a system. That's exactly right. And, and, you know, the... We need humility in governments and we need humility actually in the population, in us as citizens, of knowing that governments are limited in what they can do and therefore we ourselves need to do so much more. And I've talked about some of the local experiments that are going on in various places around the country where civil society which is us as people outside of government, hopefully with local government, but if local government won't engage because it's stuck in its procedural democracy, but outside government can get on and change things. You quote Vincent Ostrom, and he says, the operation of an electric utility always occurs subject to the intelligent discharge of human artisanship. Such a utility may in turn be linked to water systems or other systems of relationships capable of generating and using electricity. And then he finishes by saying, human societies thus are constituted by the simultaneous operation of diverse experiments variously linked to one another. So as a statement of the reality of just getting all these things somehow working, that these experiments are happening involving engagement with other people and other institutions seems to be an important point there that's easily slurred over 
there you'll have a government thinking it can papyrus this thing into change. It can set up and it should be setting up the system, the means for these various things, in this case utilities, to operate effectively. But this is a level of complexity that's just beyond them. And I think that's one of the reasons you see so much spin as well. I mean, there was a classic one this week with Johnson going down to the G7 meeting in Cornwall in a private jet uh, rather than taking oh, yes. a train. Yeah. And, and someone pointed out, or many people pointed out, that, you know, I thought you had some interest in climate change because you've just emitted personally, I think it was 100 kilograms of carbon dioxide. His response yeah. to that was to say that, ah, oh, yes, to those that say that, you should be aware that the UK is a world leader in producing jet zero uh, aviation fuel. And so you've got a political response to a physical actuality. You know, physically, mm. this is what's happened, Mr. Johnson. You've just further degraded the biosphere. He sort of span his way out of it. But of course, how much effect did that have on the biosphere? Well, the biosphere, like the pandemic, like the virus, doesn't listen to Mr. Johnson. Or but this, this, this is the... the politicization of everything isn't it that once yeah. things are reduced to to rhetoric and you know you saw the same thing with, with biden's quote-unquote summit with putin which did it achieve very much it seems that putin did exactly the same thing with everything he was confronted with and just turned around and said yes but look at what you do pointing to something that was yeah. basically completely irrelevant to be fair to biden i think and indeed putin for that matter I, it didn't seem to me that anything was going to come out of that meeting but probably a good thing that they met each other in the long term. But the notion that somehow or other this is going to be a world-turning event, it was never going to happen. So getting back from that to systemic experimentation, because I feel like we're going down a a slight rabbit hole of all the things we love to loathe about politics, (laughs) I think we decided to, to push back the crafting of experiments to a later episode. But would it be worth just giving a bit of an overview about how, in practical terms, governments and indeed people in governing positions anywhere can can sort of make the mental shift from this call and response of decisions and start lines and basically inaction to something that is more, you know, or is, is is, is there a place that we see good systemic experimentation in action? I mean, it's interesting, of course, because the pandemic has, in effect, forced experimentation. So Mm. initially, you know, people have looked at this and, right, we're going to do this, right, we're going to do that, right, we're going to do the other. Some have taken the lessons of previous pandemics and applied them. South Korea was a classic one, I think. Some of them have not. Many have behaved like rabbits caught in headlights. But as the pandemic has unfolded, and so, you know, a government has moved over there or moved over here, often on a political basis, sometimes with some science involved. And of course, one has to understand that the science, particularly in an emerging situation like this, is not an absolute. The science Mm. is emerging at the same time you have found that 
good governments are going, okay, yeah, we, we did that, that that's not working, we need to make a course correction. Right yes. now yeah. in the UK, uh, you've had an interesting situation where I think it was June the 21st, the UK government said, right, that's it, everyone's going to be free. I think both the Welsh and the Scottish governments said, well, we want to free up, but we're going to see what the situation is like when that date approaches. Mm, Because what's going to happen? What about the variants? Hey, presto, here's a variant done list to politics called the Delta variant that is now sort of spreading everywhere. And then the UK government is having to backtrack rather than setting up itself as the Welsh and Scottish governments have done in the first place and saying, well, look, we don't know. Mm. We hope that, we anticipate that, but that it may be that we can't totally end the lockdown on on June the 21st. So there are course corrections. So you can see that happening in the pandemic, but there Mm. are many situations now around the world and if you go to the observatory of public sector innovation of the oecd which um lists and reports and and indeed stimulates you'll find many experiments there systemic approaches to problems and they are working and you can see them work as we talked in the first series the Mm. problem as ever is that they are not located within an overall system that says this is how we're going to do this. So someone will go off, they'll do a really good systemic piece of work. It it might be about domestic violence, it might be about a welfare regime, it might be about recycling, it might be, well, indeed, even about fishing. And because the system is not set up to run like that, those experiments will often wither on the vine. And Mm. so you get these great bursts of innovation. How would the system be set up more effectively? Like, what's the the blockage there? So conversely, the first thing is institutionalised feedback, independent feedback. And the great irony of this is there is a thing called the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England, which was set up by... Gordon Brown in 1997, it was one of those day one acts, which happens in other countries as well. So it wasn't new to the world, as it were. But you're saying that interest rates are best set independent of government. So let's get the politics out of interest rates. And, And you can look at the research on that, and it's pretty conclusive that over the long run, That's a system that works much better. So here we have a monetary policy committee. It's given the role, legally it has the role for dealing with interest rates and inflation. Then it has a group of people on it, uh, some of which appointed by the Ministry of Finance, the Chancellor of Exchequer, um, some of which come from the Bank of England and are independent members. They have monthly meetings to set interest rates. So here's course correction built in monthly. And again, legally, they're required to do that. Guess what? Their meetings are minuted. Those minutes are published. You can go and look at them. Those members go back to their various constituencies. One might be in a bank. One might be an academic somewhere. One might be a politician. 
and over dinner, lots of people will be talking to them and informing them and feeding in mm. new ideas, fresh knowledge and opinions and so on and so forth. So you get all of that feedback. You get all of those multiple perspectives, where have we heard that yeah. before? They come back to the table next month and on an open basis, all individual votes are recorded and people are not pilloried for having a different view. People are simply recorded as having a different view and around we go again. I was also yeah. thinking about how Johnson and his stance on the virus is faintly reminiscent of um, that famous King Canute yes. sitting down in front of the tide. I, don't, I, I can't remember why, why he was doing that, but the tide came in and he wasn't able to stop it. And, and, and uh, yeah, he was going to roll the waves back. Yeah, I mean, the, the, yes. the Canute characterization was in very common usage in Parliament in the 80s and 90s and became so common. Oh, really? Common. Yeah. Yeah, but it is exactly that. Here is this biosphere. It's going to do whatever it's going to do. And it doesn't matter about what yeah. you say. And you, history will label you as a, an out-and-out failure. One of the people that contributed to the degradation, potentially the destruction of the planet for human habitation. And is that how yeah. you want to go down in history, Prime Minister? Well, on that cheery note, let's have a think about principle number 18. Designs for action shall be put into practice in the knowledge and positive acceptance that feedback may result in their amendment.